0: From WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small-town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Two years ago, we did an episode of Close to Home on the opioid epidemic in Sullivan County. In that episode, we heard from the director of a youth recovery facility, a state lawmaker, and someone struggling with opioid addiction personally. Since then, our county overdose statistics have not gotten better. In 2021, Sullivan County's opioid death rate was 108% higher than the statewide average in New York, higher than any other county in the state. In 2022, we lost 24 of our neighbors in our county to overdoses, with a higher presence of synthetic opioids like fentanyl than ever before. In July of this year, Senator Chuck Schumer, along with local leaders and federal drug officials, announced that Sullivan County would be designated as a federal high-intensity drug trafficking area meaning that local law enforcement could receive significant federal resources to respond to drug-related activities. And time will tell if and to what extent this federal support will make a difference in our community. But this got me thinking, how did all of this happen? Why did the opioid epidemic get so bad here in Sullivan County? And are we doing a good job of keeping things from getting a lot worse? Or have our efforts just not been that effective so far? To help me answer these questions, I got on a call with Dr. Patricia Strock from SUNY Albany's Rockefeller Institute of Government and Dr. Catherine Zuber from the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. The two of them, along with a handful of other researchers, have been spearheading the Stories from Sullivan project, which, according to the Stories from Sullivan website, quote, combines aggregate data analysis with on-the-ground research in affected communities to provide insight into what the opioid problem looks like, how communities respond, and what kinds of policies have the best chances of making a difference. When I talked to them, I first wanted to know how Stories from Sullivan got started.
1: So it was 2017, and Katie and I were both with the Rockefeller Institute of Government, and we were interested in the opioid epidemic and how local communities are addressing this problem. Because the discussion about the opioid epidemic and opioid overdoses was all at the national level. Here's how many people are overdosing, and even at the state level, here's what's happening in the state. It is a problem that happens across the country, but it's it's, um, set in local communities. And so we really wanted to understand how local communities, um, what the problem looks like in local communities, how local communities are addressing it, and what they might need to turn the corner on on this problem. And so we chose to look at Sullivan County because Sullivan had one of the highest opioid overdose death rates in the state. And so we we started there to try to get a perspective about what was going on in Sullivan.
0: I was looking at the opioid death rates that you have on these stories from Sullivan website, and when when you push back the clock on it and look back in time, even before other areas in the state were seeing really high opioid death rates, Sullivan counties was really quite high, even in the early 2000s, before this ever became part of the national conversation. So through your research on this, what is your sense of, of what the roots are? of that opioid crisis in Sullivan County? And and why did it hit Sullivan County so much earlier and, and so much worse than even other rural parts of New York state?
2: One of the things I would say about that is, you know, we've talked to a lot of people, probably Patty, would you say about 170 now? I don't even know where we're at.
1: Over 200 people. Yeah.
2: We've heard a lot of different stories about why people use drugs, right? Whether it's, um, They were prescribed medication for a toothache. They got injured at work. It was just something that they did for fun, right? So there's tons of different reasons why individual people use drugs, but there are common themes throughout rural communities like Sullivan. Um, One is um, prescribing rates are really high. So Sullivan County has one of the highest opioid overdose death rates, but it also has one of the highest prescribing rates. Um, in New York state. And that's true even today uh, with growing awareness around this problem. And the other thing that is common to rural communities like Sullivan in general is they lack the drug treatment infrastructure that you see in other communities, particular urban communities. So you have this problem of over-prescribing, but without necessarily as much of the infrastructure in place needed to actually treat or even prevent drug use.
0: I was looking uh, at that opioid prescription rate, I think that the most recent data you had on the stories from Sullivan website was maybe 2018, where it was 716.2 per 1000 people, which is a a mind blowing prescription rate. I, and I never would have dreamed that it it could be so high. How did that happen? How did we get to this point where 72% of the population is being prescribed opioids?
1: Well, that can be multiple prescriptions for one person. It just gives you a sense of how, how many of these prescriptions are getting out there. And I think, you know, how do we get prescription rates that high? I think that's the, that's the key question. And, and, you know, so one is the, you know, people have pain. So that's one kind of way that prescription rates get high. And another way is that, you know, doctors are treating that pain, right, by prescribing people opioids, maybe when something else might be a better um, pain reliever for them. So one of the things that New York State just passed is a law saying, well, if a doctor wants to prescribe opioids, they have to go through other, they have to discuss at least and consider other pain relievers first. So, you know, the The rate gets high the the you know, doctors get used to prescribing these drugs. People get used to taking these drugs and then once they get started, it's very hard to get them transferred to another pain alleviation system because people have have real pain and
2: I think it's too, you know, kind of like Patty's saying it's this confluence of factors. you know, you have organizations like Purdue Pharma uh, kind of misleading um, people on the level of um, how addictive these drugs really are. You have um, pain becoming identified as the fifth vital sign, um, so it becomes something that doctors are incentivized to treat, um, just like they would any of the other kind of vital signs. So, you know, I, I think there's a-, a multitude of factors that have kind of contributed to this, and this is probably speculation on my part too. But in rural communities where you have to drive long distances to get to any kind of healthcare provider, you know, providing um, a pain that is going to mediate that and make it so you can go, you know, you have to go to the doctor less. That could even be a possibility as
0: well. I'm so glad that you brought up Purdue Pharma. When we heard that they were really being sued into chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2019, how much of a win is that broadly in the fight against the opioid epidemic? Do you feel like them kind of being taken off the scene is going to help contribute to a decrease in opioid prescriptions and opioid deaths. And, and are drugs like Oxycontin the real source of the opioid epidemic problem in some place like Sullivan County?
1: So our research looks mostly at um you know things from the ground up, but we are watching these trials happen and these broader lawsuits happening at the national level and um you know seeing what's happening with Purdue Pharma and I think you know one of the things that happens is the families behind this are take they're not losing they've taken their money and they've you know put it behind a wall. So in that way you know they've made a lot of money from these drugs and they get to keep the money from these drugs and then the bankruptcy and the settlement those monies are going into treatment for people who have this um you know opioid use disorder and the treatments are Oftentimes, medication-assisted treatments that are are uh, manufactured by many of the same pharmaceutical companies. So it is it is a win, and I think that companies like Purdue have to be held responsible. And there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, large companies that are involved, including consulting firms that advise pharmaceutical companies about how to get more doctors to prescribe these drugs. So there's a lot of different actors involved. And I and I do think, you know, in terms of what happened in Sullivan County, the very, very high rates of prescribing lead lead us to believe that this is one of the main pathways in, in Sullivan County.
2: And to that, I would just add, you know, th- there's no guarantee on, you know, how this money is going to be spent or where it's going to be spent. And so we've talked to actually a mom in Sullivan County who said, I haven't seen this money. Where is this money? And, and let me spend this money. Give me the money. And so it is it is a big win and these companies do need to be held accountable, but we need to also make sure that the beneficiaries of this are the people who were directly affected by it.
0: In terms of the landscape of the opioid epidemic in Sullivan County and other rural areas in our region as well, is is your sense that it is mostly prescription drugs that are driving the epidemic. Um, Obviously, we have a problem with heroin as well and and other illegal opioids. How have you seen that breakdown in practice throughout your research and throughout your interviews?
2: Patty and I were actually just recently talking about this. When we started in 2017, it was, you know, prescription painkillers. And then all of a sudden we were hearing about fentanyl. And then we were hearing about carfentanil. And then we were hearing about heroin. And then heroin um mixed with fentanyl and then now it's xylazine that we're hearing all about and so we've kind of watched this phenomenon morph um into you know as we've watched it over the years and I'd say um prescription painkillers are still a major uh issue but I think the major issue too is um you know heroin again mixed with fentanyl uh, we spoke to a young woman who said she was doing heroin and when she overdosed and went to the hospital she she actually had no heroin in her system it was all fentanyl and she didn't even she didn't even know it and so i think heroin has become a bigger problem and and you know um pills that are being sold on the street that are they're saying they're one thing but they're really again laced with fentanyl so i think that's become Uh, a bigger problem is that fentanyl has become such a a, a large problem. And now we're also seeing this uh, xylazine. So it it has certainly changed and evolved over the the time we've been working on this project.
1: Right. And so anybody who is in pain, one of the things that happened is the state put in place the registry. So provider wants to to prescribe an opioid, they have to put it into the system and the pharmacist checks the system. So that made it really difficult for providers to prescribe these drugs. And so a lot of them responded just by stopping altogether uh, the prescriptions of, of, of legal opioids. And so there was no, and this is one of the huge problems in New York state, there was no transition for people who were being prescribed opioids, who suddenly their doctors just stopped and so a lot of those people turn to heroin, as Katie said, and then, you know, it morphed into fentanyl because fentanyl is being mixed into the drug supply with everything now, right? So a lot of these opioid overdoses are from people who don't know that they are taking fentanyl. Maybe they're buying cocaine and it's laced with fentanyl. Maybe they're buying heroin that's laced with fentanyl. Maybe they're buying what they think is a legitimate um, pharmaceutical on the black market, but it's actually fentanyl or laced with fentanyl. So you know i think the the push might have been from legal prescription drugs in sullivan county but i think now the the pervasiveness of black market drugs um especially fentanyl has really kind of changed the landscape
0: turning more to interventions against this and what you've seen in sullivan county in the fight against the opioid epidemic a lot of your work was published online i think in or around 2018 what have you seen since then in terms of the community's response to the opioid epidemic particularly during covid and and now i'm going to use big air quotes post covid because i'm not sure if we're ever going to be really post covid (laughs) how has the landscape changed
1: we did interviews um, during COVID, and one thing that we found was that it just made a difficult situation a lot worse, right? So, all of the same kinds of restrictions that everybody was feeling on social distancing and, you know, um, limitations like businesses being shut down really hurt providers' ability to provide services. So, they were still open, but if you have a if you have kind of an inpatient residential system, you had to reduce the number of people who are in your facility so that people would be distanced. And so the number of people that were able to access treatment during COVID um, went down. And so I think you saw the numbers spiked, right? So people are under a lot of stress. Treatment, the ability to access treatment is, is reduced and um, you know, fentanyl is being mixed in the drug supply. So it, I think it was a, a bit of a deadly combination we talked to a couple providers in Sullivan
2: County and i was really surprised at how kind of innovative that they were um and so you know everybody shuts down and nobody has any ppe so one local provider goes to a nail salon right because the nail salon's not open but they have masks and so they they go to all these places that they can to you know get masks or Uh, another uh, provider uh, went to a local construction guy and got hazmat suits um, to bring into the hospital. So I think Patty's right. It made a a difficult situation even worse. Um, But providers were really innovative because they weren't, especially in the beginning, getting what they needed from the government. Um, And so they found their own ways to do it. And the other thing I will say too, I think It was especially hard on clients um, because I do remember we, we spoke to somebody who said, you know, I couldn't go to my group meetings. I couldn't meet individually with my counselor, but I could walk around the corner and the liquor store was open. Um, and so, you know, the, the triggers for using, especially for clients, uh, the isolation, the loneliness, and the fact, like I said, everything's closed. Treatment is minimal. You can't meet with your counselor. You can't meet with your group, but you can go out on the street and, and, you know, buy alcohol. I think that was a kind of an eye opening thing for me.
1: And I just want to jump in. And one, one thing that, uh, rural providers, so rural (laughs) providers, rural providers, when we were doing the COVID interviews, they were, um. They were saying that in some ways, some things got better for them in ways that urban providers did not tell us that same story. So one thing that happened because of COVID is that a lot of things moved to telehealth. And so for urban providers, they're talking about how much more difficult that made things for them because of broadband access and you know a lot of people in very small spaces, a lack of privacy. But for rural providers, they were telling us this is a real boon because somebody having to drive 45 minutes or an hour... To meet with a counselor, to meet with their doctor, suddenly could have those meetings via telehealth, and so they saw engagement go up via telehealth. And so that was one of the things that we hadn't anticipated. Other things that rural providers had that urban providers didn't was um, more space, more physical space. So they have you know parking lots, and urban providers don't. So a lot of they were able to move kind of services into parking lots and open spaces and you know lawns, and urban providers couldn't. So there were some advantages. That rural providers had during COVID that urban providers certainly didn't have access to.
0: Would you say that healthcare in our area improved in the last few years uh, since 2018 or since COVID?
2: I would definitely say that. Um... The government has lifted some restrictions that have allowed uh, providers in rural communities to do things that before they weren't allowed to do. Um, Things like you don't have to go for an in-person physical in order to be um, put on medication assisted treatment. And these are things that providers have been asking for for years, right? Uh, Things that would make their jobs easier. And then all of a sudden COVID happens and the government you know, lifts these really onerous restrictions that make it, you know, they're designed to, you know, secure the integrity of services, but sometimes they just don't make sense and they just make it harder for providers to do their jobs. And so some of these restrictions since COVID have, you know, facilitated and helped providers, particularly in rural areas, to meet clients where they're at, right? So telehealth has been huge, the restrictions on these in-person physicals and things like that, restrictions on toxicologies, all of these restrictions that got lifted because of COVID, so long as they stay in place, can help providers, right? It doesn't mean that their job's going to be easy, but it makes it somewhat easier than it was before COVID,
0: course of both of your years of research on the ground in Sullivan County talking to people stakeholders involved in the opioid epidemic what do you feel that we got right and what we got wrong in how we responded to opioids
1: i think that's a that's a difficult question it's a great question but it's a difficult question because one of the things that we really seeing so we started in Sullivan, then we added on Orange County, and then we were down in the Bronx talking to people um, down in New York City. And the problem looks really different in in Sullivan compared to to New York City, right? So the drug use in Sullivan is much more private behind closed doors or much less public on, on streets than it is in somewhere like New York City and also the resources that sullivan county has compared to orange county or new york city is very different and so you're comparing apples and oranges to say that sullivan should be doing what new york city is doing because sullivan doesn't have the resources that new york city does and it doesn't have the problem doesn't look the same in sullivan that it does in new york city um so i think i think that's a that's a you know difficult question and i would say you know sullivan is out there doing what it can with the resources it has. And I would I would um, encourage the state to step in and provide those resources that the county might need that it does not have. And I think that would allow kind of the more comprehensive approach to fixing a problem. But there's really only so much you can do with the kinds of resources that it has.
2: Yeah, I mean, and I think the state stepping in and providing those resources is is critical because right now I think the struggle is being carried on the back of providers and on the backs of people who are experiencing this directly, not only people who use drugs, but their family members and their loved ones who are responsible for taking care of them. When I remember being at a, at a presentation, um, Uh, a couple years back. And um, the speaker was talking about how obviously what we're doing is not working because these numbers keep going up and up and up. And so no matter, you know, no matter what we do, no matter how we intervene, the problem keeps getting worse. So what is it we're doing wrong? And I remember a provider in the back of the room raising his hand and being like, don't tell me that what I'm doing is not working. I'm going to get up every day and I'm going to go to my job and I'm going to save lives and I'm going to help people. And maybe these numbers are going to get higher and higher, but that doesn't mean I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing. And so I think the state does need to come in, right? And, and give these communities the resources that they need to actually address the problem. You know, we've heard a million times over, you say we have a problem then let's treat it like a problem. Um, and until that happens, again, like the brunt of this is going to be carried on the back of the providers and the people who are directly affected by it.
1: I should say there's a across the country, there's a two million person shortage in the substance use disorder workforce. Two million people. And so this is not a um an area that has enough resources, not only money, but also individuals who are working in it and providing it. And that includes, you know, nonprofit and private providers, but it also includes, you know, county health officials and county workers who are trying to do something with, without a lot of, um, without a lot of support.
0: What were some of the interventions or solutions that seemed to be effective that you learned about throughout the course of your work that surprised you?
2: I would say one of the things that actually surprised me, I, I think that the people that we've talked to, you know, there's no one like magic bullet. Right. Like it what works for one person may not work for another. I think one of the one, one of the things that surprised me is the disagreement within treatment communities over what is the most effective intervention. Right. So there are plenty of people who think medication-assisted treatment is um a miracle. Right. And you know, we just spoke to one young woman again who said it works for me, you know, and it really helps me. Um, and then you have other, you know, providers in, in the community who are. Bill abstinence only, right? And so they think medication-assisted treatment is substituting one drug for another drug. I understood that that was a debate happening kind of within broader kind of political discussions about that. I didn't understand, I didn't, I was surprised to see that there was disagreement within the treatment community around those issues.
1: And I think one of the things that I've seen that I guess I was surprised at is the um growing acceptance of harm reduction approaches. So harm reduction is this idea that the goal is not to get people to stop using drugs. The goal is to make sure that whatever they're doing, they're doing safely. And so when, or if they choose to stop using, they're alive to do that, right? So once somebody overdoses and dies, you don't get a second chance. That person never gets a second chance to go into treatment or just to continue living their life. And so a lot of the harm reduction strategies like um, you know, needle exchanges and Narcan and even safe injection sites, kind of a growing, since 2017, those ideas, those ideas were kind of, you know, um, in some communities, but I've seen like a growing acceptance of those ideas across the state.
0: If you were both made rural policy czars and you could throw money at anything or legislate anything with just the wave of a hand, what would be some of the, Day one stuff that you would be investing in, or changing, or legislating Mm -hmm. um, related to the opioid epidemic.
1: I really hope that happens because I think that would be a lot of fun. You know, if I if I were in charge, one thing I would do is I would put more resources behind this. So we have, have, um, you know, this is not a problem that's getting better, and it's not a problem that's going to go away on its own. And we say that we're committed to it, but if you look at the funding levels and if you look at the pay, like it, on every level, somebody working in substance use disorder services is paid less than their counterpart in some other form of, you know, medicine or counseling or administrative services. So that we say one thing, but then we do another. So what I would really do is treat this like the health condition that it is and put more resources behind uh, addressing it. So it's the first thing that I would do. Um, And the second thing I would do in a rural, in rural settings is I would uh, invest in more um, service, mobile services, right? So one thing that happens is people who receive uh, medication-assisted treatment through methadone, they have to go to the methadone facility six days a week, right? And so when you're talking about an urban area, that might be somewhere that's around the corner, which is a pain, but it's doable. But when you're talking about in a rural uh, area like Sullivan, so we had mom, one mom tell us that she drives her um, child 90 minutes each way to to receive methadone, and that's just not sustainable in the long term, and it's not it's not doable. So I would, you know, it, if there's not the the number of people that we need to have a facility in Sullivan County, I would allow methadone vans to go around into you know, provide services where people live and when they need them. And I think treatment would increase and people's ability to stay in treatment would increase.
2: And I would just to, you know, reemphasize Patty's point about, you know, resources, especially investing in staff. Um, There's already, you know, the staffing shortage that Patty had mentioned. And, you know, we hear that it's, you know, retention of staff is really difficult because they're not paid for the value of the work that they do you know so we talked to folks who are like i'm losing staff left and right not to other hospitals or providers but to burger king because you get paid better at burger king than you do to come in and and work here so resources especially um for staffing and also i think too resources for prevention you know i don't think we talk enough about prevention again another provider in sullivan county says you know you can't get rewarded for something that doesn't happen And so we don't put enough money into prevention and thinking about how to stop um, drug use um, before it even starts. And, you know, that's going to take more than just, you know, a a workbook or say no to drugs. Right. And so I think we have to think more about investing in prevention and making sure that we're innovative in how we think about
0: prevention. Is there anything on the state or federal level, maybe policy-wise, coming down the pipeline that you are looking toward and that you're feeling optimistic about that might help impact this and and might help improve the situation for communities fighting the opioid epidemic?
1: I think there's been a lot of uh, post-COVID changes. So there's been, you know, we've just seen the elimination of the X waiver at the federal level. So doctors, if they want to prescribe buprenorphine. They have to apply for and receive a special waiver. And so there's the elimination now. They do not have to apply for that waiver. All of these things, these kinds of um, reduce the barriers that that prevent doctors from providing these services, reduce the barriers that make it hard for for, uh, individuals to access these services. I think, you know, all of these are really good things and things that we should be applauding. I just wish that there was more of them and that they were coming down faster. So the X waiver elimination is great, but there's still the training requirements that doctors have to go through. So I do think doctors should be trained, but I think it should happen in medical school and not telling a doctor they have to give up eight hours of their day (laughs) to go and and get this this, uh, certification so that they can provide services because they won't do it. They're busy people. There's some
2: discussion at the federal level about removing restrictions on how many take-home doses uh, people can can have, um, and so these things are are things that will make it easier for people to access the treatment that they need without all of the without all of the
0: restrictions. Thank you both so much for taking the time to chat. I really appreciate having you both on. Is there anything else that either of you want to add?
1: I guess I just want to say a thank you to the people of Sullivan County who spoke with us, right? So we've talked about how there's not enough staffing. We've talked about there's not enough resources. So to take time out of their day to spend time and tell us what's going on, we really appreciate because we know that time can be used in um, lots of other ways. And we know that they're already working really long days to provide services for the people of Sullivan County. So we really appreciate that. um, And all of the families and community members who who shared their experiences with us. We're very grateful.
2: I can't tell you the amount that we have learned from the people in Sullivan County. And through our work, we've tried to get that out to policymakers and hopefully people who make a difference. And I do want to say... We are actually currently in the phase of speaking to people who use drugs. Um, and so if there are folks out there, um, you know, our idea behind this whole project has been to um, understand and learn about it from the people who are directly affected. And so if there are people who use drugs that would like to speak with us um, from Sullivan County, um, I would encourage them to reach out. But yes, to say thank you. We, we have learned a lot and um, we appreciated everybody's time.
0: And what's the best way to reach out if anyone wants to participate in your work?
1: Email or phone. So my email is PSTRACH at albany.edu or by phone, 518 442 3856.
0: something that I've been thinking about a lot since my conversation with Professor Struck and Zuber is this point that they made about harm reduction. Because I think it makes us ask ourselves what our goals are in tackling this complex, nuanced issue that is the opioid epidemic in America. There are so many moving parts here that demand our thoughtful and dedicated attention as a community. From prevention, to recovery, to monitoring illegal and legal drug supplies, and more. But we can't even begin to help folks recover from addiction if we can't keep them alive long enough to do so. That is why these investments in harm reduction matter so much, especially when we have opioids like fentanyl becoming even more of a risk to those who are struggling with addiction. And we can make serious strides in lowering the overdose death rate in Sullivan County and healing our community when we get serious about investing in treatments for the epidemic that this is. We have all lost too many friends and loved ones to this disease, and for as much as it hurts that we can't bring them back, it is our responsibility as a county, state, and national community to do everything we can not to lose more. Thank you again to Professors Patricia Strock and Katie Zuber for the insights they provided on today's episode. And as always, thank you for listening. I'm Leif Johansen, and this is Close to Home, a podcast from WJFF Radio Catskill. Stay safe and have a great week.